Good morning, Merciel. How are we doing? It's good to see you guys. My name is Timmy, and I'm on staff here at Mercy Hill. I work with Salt Company. That's our, our college ministry. We just finished up for the year a couple weeks ago, but we will be picking up in June, so excited about that. Um, now, this last week, I came across this, this study where this group of professionals, they asked this group of, of young kids, ages four to eight, this question. And the question they asked them is, is um, what does love mean? Okay. Now, you can imagine, I don't know if any of y'all have ever asked a, a group of little kids, I mean, they just fire out whatever is on their mind, which is, you know, funny in and of itself. But, but actually, as one researcher said, that uh, the answers they got were deeper and broader than anyone could have imagined. So I just want to read some of my favorite ones. So they're answering the question, what does love mean? So this is Chrissy, who is age six. She said, Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs, okay? No paybacks. Chrissy knows what's up. Now, Danny, age seven, said, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. That's sweet. If Lindsay sips my coffee, not good. Yeah. Um, Noel, age seven, says, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. I think she's going to have some issues, so we can pray for Noel. Uh, Karen, also seven, said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down, and little stars come out of you. Okay, Jessica, this is bars right here, okay? She's seven as well. She said, you shouldn't say, you, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Rebecca, age eight, said, When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Well, it's one thing to get a child's perspective on love, okay? But today, we get to open up the Bible and we get to look at God's perspective on love. God's word in this passage today is going to say that God is love, and he gets to define love. He gets to say what it is. And so um, we are starting a new series called For the Love of God in 1 John. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 John. Now, I apologize. I didn't get any slides today, so I, I won't have the scripture behind me. So if you don't have a Bible, um, I would encourage you grab one of the blue ones that's, that's on the floor and grab it quick because they may be limited or whatever. Um, and it's on page 592 if you're in one of the blue Bibles that is on the floor. Um, this is an incredible text, and I think you guys should, should really put your eyes on these verses. And so we will begin in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. Um, I will pray for us really quick. Father, we thank you so much um, for the hope that we have in Jesus and him alone. Uh, we thank you that we get to, to meet in this, this little old cafeteria and transform it into a place of worship, Lord, where we can make much of you. And so I pray, God, as we look at your word this morning, that you would show us more truths about who you are. You would convict us of sin that's in our life and remind us what Jesus has done to bridge the gap between us and you. So we give you all glory. Pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start in verse 7 of chapter 4. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, John here, he's writing to Christians, and he's telling them that they are beloved, meaning that they are loved by God, and that those who are loved by God should love others. Like, loving others is an essential outcome of knowing God. Okay, that's our first point, and so if you're a note-taker, you could write that down. Loving others is an essential outcome of knowing God. Now, he's not saying love others so that you can know God or that you can be born of God. He's saying that this is in response to someone who encounters God's grace and is in a relationship with him. The natural result is that they love others. That should be the essential outcome. The reality is is that when regeneration happens, like when we have new birth or we're born again, it unites us spiritually dead, our spiritually dead hearts, our selfish hearts, with God's living and loving heart. And his life becomes our life, and his love becomes our love. So the outcome of this is that you begin to look like Christ, and you begin to love like he loves. So I don't know if any of you have ever observed people who are, like, really into Marvel and, like, Avengers in the comics, okay? Um, You know, like, those people who who really love, like, they they have all the, um, you know, the costumes and stuff and and the little souvenirs, and they spend a lot of money on it. Like, they eat, breathe, sleep it, Okay? The most fanatical of those fans, they go to this little conference called Comic-Con. Has anybody been to Comic-Con? I'm pretty sure Ernie's at Comic-Con right now. That's why he's not. (laughs) Uh, But here's what happens at Comic-Con, right? All all these these Marvel lovers and, you know, people who are, like, really into comics, they get these really expensive costumes, and they put them on, and they try to imitate their favorite superhero at this, this, like, festival thing. They talk like them. They want to look like them and act like them. And... Guys, those who love God and know him intimately and are in a relationship with him should begin, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to imitate God because he is their father. He says that children of God, we should imitate God because he is our father. Now, I want us to see that love begins with God, not us. Like, it's really important that we understand that that love begins with God, not us. A biblical definition of love will always start with God. Look at verse 7. See, not only does John say that love is from God, but even more than that in verse 8, he says that love, that God is love. Now, this doesn't mean that love is God. Like, God is love does not equal love is God. In the same way that smoke is black does not mean that black is smoke or the grass is green, doesn't mean the same thing as is green and grass. Green is grass. Love does not define God, but God defines love. And as the essence of love, like that's who God is, he gets to say what love is. And he also gets to say what love is not. We, we don't get to do that. We don't get to define love for ourselves and say what it is. We don't get to pick and choose the things that we say are love and are not. God gets to do that because it's in his very essence and character and nature. And what we're going to see later in verse 10 is that this means he seeks the best for those even at great expense to himself. Which means if you want to see what God's love looks like, if you really want to see love, then look at God. And in response to God's love, we are to love him and love one another. Look again at verse 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
I love the way Pastor John Piper talks about these verses. Here's how he puts it. He says, love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light and fire gives heat because it is heat. And then he goes on to say, he says, in the new birth, right, this when we become a Christian, this aspect of the divine nature becomes part of who you are. The new birth is imparting to you a divine life, and a part of that life is love. God's nature is love, and in the new birth, that nature becomes part of who you are. So again, loving others is an essential outcome of knowing God, and those who are children of God should love. Not with the type of love that the world defines, but the type of love that God's talking about here. Now, I, I also want to be clear. Being a child of God and being made in the image of God are, are not the same thing. Like every single person in this room and every, every, every person who's ever existed has been made in the image of God. We've been created and we reflect and we bear God's image. And that gives us value. But being a child of God is something that's, that's, that's even more special than that. It's more significant. It means that we're in a father-son or father-daughter relationship with God, and we are at peace with God. You see, Scripture says because of sin, we are enemies of God. We've already seen last week or two weeks ago in 1 John where he says that anybody who's not born of God is still a child of the devil. You see, children of God don't simply, they don't know just about God, but they have a relationship with him, and they know him intimately in a father-son or father-daughter relationship. So it would be really silly of me to tell you all that, that I know LeBron James. Right? I know about LeBron James, but it, it's not the same thing for me to, to say that, yeah, yeah, like me and LeBron are tight, we have a relationship. So say I went to LeBron's house, and I'm sure he has a gate, but say the gate was open and the security was doing a poor job, and I went up to his door and I rang the doorbell, and LeBron opens the door, and I was like, what's up, dude? Like, want to hang out? Like, how's Savannah doing? That's LeBron's wife. And he would probably, like, slam the door in my face or just, like, slap me and say, get off my property or call the cops, right? Because we don't have a relationship. He doesn't know me. See, some of you here may know a lot about God. And maybe you've grown up in church and you've heard a lot of stories about God. And maybe you've played some religious game with God, but that doesn't make you a son or daughter of God. John's going to tell us later how that's made possible and that it's through Jesus and through faith in him alone. But up to this point, right, here's John's logic. One, that God's love. Two, those who have been born of God and know God are his children. And that immediately when we become children of God, we are given his nature. And we should begin to reflect him and love like he loves and that we demonstrate by a life of love that we know God. So Mercy Hill, when, when we don't love one another, we are acting in opposition of who we truly are as children of God. When we choose not to love one another, we act not in our identity that God has created us and given us. We're not living who he's made us to be, but we're living in opposition to that. So when we choose gossip or slander, or we choose lust 
and we treat others like objects, and we don't choose love there. We're not, that's not who you are. When we choose greed and we want to hoard and be selfish, that's not who God has made you to be. When we choose this and not love, we are acting in complete opposition to who we truly are as a child of God. And again, an essential outcome of knowing God and being born of God is that we begin to love others like he has loved us. That's what John's point is. And so, guys, think about God. The essence of love has loved you and has given you his love. That should change your life. Like if you're walking, you know, on, on campus by Clifton where all the construction is and say one of their wrecking balls got loose and it came and it just smoked you, that's going to affect your life. That's going to change your life. Right? If you got hit by God's grace, by the essence of love himself, the eternal God, that should change your life. Now look at in verse 9. Look at what John says next. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right, here's our next point. God's love is most clearly seen in the gospel. God's love is most clearly seen in the gospel. Here John is telling us what God's love looks like. See, it's one thing just to, to talk about love, but it's a totally different thing to show love. And John is saying, here is how God has shown us love. Look at verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Meaning, I'm about to tell you what God's love looks like, how he's shown it to you, how he has revealed it to us. He says among us, which means that this isn't something that they just heard about. This isn't something that they've heard rumors of. They've seen it. They've witnessed it personally. And here is how. This is what we know, that God sent his one and only son into the world, and he did so for this purpose, so that we might live through him. Can you just stop and think about that statement for a second? This is the greatest news in the entire world. This is the gospel. This is one of the most important and wonderful verses in the entire Bible. First, it notes that God is the initiator, that he came after us, that he sent his son. And then second, it also addresses the magnitude of his love because the gift wasn't just anything. It was his eternal son. Like he didn't send an angel. He sent his only begotten son. Have you ever wondered if you're loved? Like maybe you walked in here this morning thinking, does anybody notice me? Does anybody actually care about me? Does anybody see me? More than that, have you ever wondered if you're actually loved by God? Because the cross answers this with a resounding yes. You are loved by God. You see, the truth is, is every single one of us, because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. Like we have all sinned against God, and we've all rebelled against God. 
Because God is holy and perfect, he cannot be in relationship with people who are not holy and perfect. And so what we need to be in right relationship with God, to be at peace with God, is we need righteousness, perfection. None of us have that. None of us can earn that. That's what religions say. You try to do enough good things, and then maybe God will accept you. But God says you cannot do enough good things. I am holy. You have to be holy. Well, none of us can be holy. Here's what John's pointing out. This is love, that God looked at his eternal son, Jesus, the only one who could fix our sin problem because he was fully God and fully man, and he went to earth willingly, lived a perfect life that we are all required to live, that we could not live because we're broken. And he lived it perfectly, and he was obedient to the Father perfectly. Like, you know that command? I've said this before. We know that command where, where, like in the Bible where it says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and, your, and strength. Like, there's not one of us in this room who's been able to do that for a second. And yet there wasn't a second of Jesus' entire life to where he didn't do that perfectly all the way up until the cross to where he gave his life for you. And your sins and my sins were laid on him as if he did it. And for the first time, he was separated from his father and punished by his father. The punishment that we deserve for our sin. And three days later, that's why we celebrate God rose his son from the grave and Jesus walked out victorious. And here is the gospel truth now that all who look to Jesus and acknowledge that they're broken and they repent of their sin and they trust in him and that his work is enough, God promises to give them eternal life. God knew who Jesus was the only way to give us peace in life. And he sent his son anyways. So you want to see how loving God is, guys. Look at the cross. Apostle Paul says something very similar in Romans 5.8. Just listen, listen to this as I read it. He says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God has shown us his love. The most clear that he sent his eternal son to die in our place so that we could have life. That God sent his eternal son from heaven into enemy territory so that we might live, so that you might live. Like that is the most mind-boggling thing I've ever tried to understand. Like why would God do that? only shows who he is. Let's jump back and look at verse 10. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what John is doing in these verses is he's explaining to the believers the theology behind how they were saved. Like, how their salvation works, what God has done to reconcile broken sinners to themselves. He's just, given, he's just given more details. So he uses that word propitiation, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But you ask, like, like 
Why is this important? And here's the thing. It is human nature, guys, for us to trivialize and minimize and normalize things that we hear over and over again. And so maybe you've grown up in church, and yeah, I've heard that Jesus has died for me, and that if I believe in him, I have life. And that's just a normal thing to you. That's just trivial. Like, I don't care to know any more than that. Like, if that's your attitude, that's offensive to God, and you should repent of that. So why is it important we understand how our salvation works? Because we're talking about news, guys, with eternal significance. Like, if it doesn't matter in 100 years or 1,000 years, we shouldn't waste our life putting all our eggs in that basket. We're talking about people's souls being at stake, your souls and those who you care about the most. Because our souls are going to last forever. And so words like propitiation in verse 10, that it matters. And realizing that God is the initiator, that matters. Because the greater we understand how our salvation works, here's, here's the truth, the more we will love and appreciate our God. Think of, like, your salvation, if you will, like an engine, okay, and all the parts of it like an engine. Now, I'm, I'm no mechanic, okay? Uh, I'm not super handy either. I hate admitting that. I wish I was, but I'm not. Um, but I, I like engines, you know, they, they, and, and I like engines mainly for the fact that they help me get from point A to B, right? Like, that's, that's, that's why I like engines the most is because I think they're useful there. But a mechanic right, who understands all the different parts of an engine, like how the pistons work and how they function and move in the combustion chamber and all the, all the things, all the gadgets and gizmos, right, they have a much greater appreciation for engines than the average Joe, than, than I do. Okay? The reality is this, that the greater you understand what lengths God went to accomplish your salvation, how much it cost him, how much you didn't deserve it, how there was no other way, how God upheld both perfect justice while showing perfect love, then the greater you're going to love God and be drawn to him and trust him. So let's look at the rest of verse 10. John says, in this is love. Again, he's saying, what I am about to tell you is, is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's just two things that I want us to see in this verse. The first is that God did not love you when you were lovable or because you were lovable. God loved you because he's loving. You didn't deserve God's love, and neither did I. And the second is that he sent his own son to be the propitiation. I'm just going to talk about that word um, it's only used four times in the New Testament. A lot of us probably have never heard that word before, and that's okay. It's one of the most important words in the Bible. Here's what it means. It means to appease God's wrath or to satisfy God's wrath. See, in a lot of Christian circles, we love talking about how God is love and God is merciful, but God is also just. And the fact that we have sinned against God, an eternal holy God, God can't just let that go unpunished. Like a sentence has to be executed. We live in a culture that longs for justice. If justice was executed like that, without this word, then we would all die. And we would all be under God's wrath for our sin against an eternal holy God. 
But look at this. Here's what this means. Is that on the cross, God did execute perfect justice. And he did carry out the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So that we wouldn't have to. But he carried it out on his own son. That's why it's super significant. And so in all this, guys, John is explaining what God's love looks like. We've seen it's sacrificial. That it seeks the best of others, even at the expense of himself. It's purposeful. It leads people to their best life. The back half of verse 9 shows us that what was the reason he sent Jesus? So that we might have life through him. He doesn't want to withhold from you. It's purifying. right? It leads away from sin, not to it. So let's continue in verse 11. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Look at that first word again, beloved. means one who is loved by God. Like our obedience always starts with the fact that we're loved and begins with our new identity in Christ. Love for others is an outflow of being loved by God. So think of a, a well versus a hose. Okay, a hose cannot produce water in and of itself. It has to be hooked to a water source. We are like a hose, and God is like the well. He is the source. So the true, like, God type of love that John's talking about, that we should pour out, it actually comes from God. It's not something that we just create in and of ourselves or is, is our own. It's been given to us. And so John is saying, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The natural response to encountering God's love is to begin to love others. Now notice John's statement in verse 12, what he says next. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here's our last point is that God's love is perfected in us when we love one another with the love of God. So if you're a note taker, write that one down. God's love is perfected in us when we love one another with the love of God. Now notice that statement that he makes in verse 12. Look in your, look in your Bibles where, where he says, no one has ever seen God. Now, when I read this paragraph, 7 through 12, like this is our last verse, when, when I read this paragraph, I felt like that was the most confusing thing in this text. Like, I don't understand why does he randomly say no one has ever seen God? Like, we're, we're, we're talking about how we should love others because we've been loved by God through Jesus. And then he just says that phrase, no one has ever seen God. Well, here's why. The reality is, guys, is that in, in our mortal bodies right now, these earthly bodies that we have, we can't be in the full presence of God. Like, do you remember in Exodus, after um, God frees the, the Israelites from the Egyptians, and, and then he takes Moses up on the mountain on Mount Sinai, right before God gives him the Ten Commandments? Okay, it's Exodus chapter 33. It's pretty cool. Moses asks God to see his face. He wants to see God's glory. And God says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. That's how incredible and glorious and holy God is. So here's what God says. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you on this cleft here in this mountain. 
and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and I'm going to pass by, and you'll see my back. And he does that, and Moses just begins to just worship how incredible God is, okay? Reality is, none of us in this room, if we experience the full, full glory of God, and we were in his presence, and we saw his face right now, we would, we would be vaporized. We would explode. That's how incredible God is, okay? I don't understand it fully, but, but God's word says it, so, so we take it, okay? But here's where I'm going with this. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another with the type of love that God has given us, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So right here, John's argument takes this this beautiful turn that no one can see God in his presence, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love to others. So here's how John Stott puts it. He says, Mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. So here's what this means. That one of the best ways right now for the world to see God is through the way that we love one another. One of the best ways right now for the world to see love is through the way that we love, for the world to see God is through the way that we love one another. And so as disciples, guys, we're, we're saved to do this and we're commanded to do, to do this and not just, not just love God and not just love the people who are easy to love because some people are easier to love than others. But Jesus would go as far to say, love your enemies. In Matthew 5, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard. Some of you have heard the name Brad Buzer. Um, some of you have probably met him before if, if you moved here from Louisiana with me. But uh, Brad grew up in San Diego, California. And he got saved whenever he was in high school. Um, he was, before that, just a, a surfer and a stoner. Stoned all the time. That's what, he, that's what he, he talks about. And someone shared the gospel with him, and his life was radically changed by God's grace. And a youth pastor at the time began to disciple him, him and his friends who had just come to know Jesus. And they all called him the youth pastor of hell, okay, from hell. And, he, and here's why. Uh, this youth pastor was really great at destroying all of their dreams. All the things that they wanted to do before, God had something so much greater because once you come to know God, his dreams become your dreams and his purpose becomes your purpose, okay? And so he began to faithfully teach the word of God to these young guys who, who had, who had um, just come to know Jesus. And so Brad began to realize that Jesus didn't just come to save people like me. Jesus didn't just come to save Americans or save Jewish people, but he came from some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And there are still, guys, thousands of languages right now in our world where there is not access to the word of God. Where they are not hearing about Jesus. And we know Jesus is the only way for someone to be made right with God. And so that should, that should bother us. It should make us want to pray. It should make some of you probably want to go. It made Brad want to go. Okay? And so Brad moved with his, his wife and their newborn to Papua New Guinea, all right? And Papua New Guinea 
the, the mother tongue there is pidgin, okay? So he learns that language, but they have access to God's word. And there are, there are good churches in Papua New Guinea. But there's still hundreds of people groups in Papua New Guinea where they don't have access to the Bible and their language. And so he moved into this tribe of people called the Uteti people, okay? And his whole hope is to learn their language, to live amongst these people, learn their language fluently. He's already learned one, one language, pidgin, and now he's living with the Uteti people. He's trying to learn their language in hopes of being able to translate the whole Bible into their language and then leave behind, hopefully win some to Christ and begin to disciple them. It's an impossible task that only, only God can do. Okay, well, the first year he's living amongst these Uteti people, okay, and, and think like jungle, tribal, like indigenous, like there's no civilization here. In fact, it, it took um, well over a, a full day for them to get from civilization to where this, this tribe lives. So the first year they're living there, his son comes down with malaria, and he's really sick. And so he's, uh, he begins to, you know, like he's on the edge of death, and he thinks his son's about to die, so we got, i got to hike him out of here. Remember, it's a full day's journey. And so he begins to pack up, and this group of Uteti men right here, he sees, like, see him, like, like asked him where he was going. And he turns the face of his son, whose eyes are now rolled in the back of his head, and he says, can't you see my son's dying? I'm trying to hike him out of here to bring him to the hospital to get help. And these men start laughing. And they start chattering. And he doesn't know their language that well at this point. And so he asked the translator that he had with him, what are they saying? And the guy's like, I wrote the words down because I called Brad this last week just to make sure I got the story right. He said, you're wasting your time. Go home. Your son's already dead. Just go bury him and have another one. Grow up and be a man. That's what these men just told Brad. And I remember Brad telling me the story, and he says, this is the most angry he's ever been in his whole life. Like, I just moved here with my family, away from all the comforts that I had, because I want you guys, well, I want Christ to be exalted, and he's my king, and he's commanding me to. But I want you guys to have this hope, and I know that Jesus is the only way for you guys to have life. And it's the most angry he's ever been in his whole life. And everything in him in that moment wanted to just leave, pack up his stuff, I'm done. I'm out of here. Screw you guys. So when I talked to Brad on Wednesday and he was telling me the story, he said what kept him there was realizing the only thing that kept him there was realizing how much he had been loved by Jesus when he was his enemy, when he wanted nothing to do with him, when God sent his son to die for him, the whole time he's just mocking him and living his life in rebellion to him. That's what motivated him, and the only thing. And so by God's grace, his son survived. And more than that, they would live there for 19 more years, translate the Bible into their language, share the gospel with them. God would save some. And to this day, there is a healthy, thriving church in Papua New Guinea amongst the Uteti people. So what about you and what about me? 
think we should ask ourselves, who in our life right now are we not loving? Who are we not extending compassion towards? This isn't to shame any of us, right, that gets us nowhere. But we should reflect on that. And be honest with God. And hopefully it leads to conviction and then repentance. And we would remind ourselves of the gospel and realize how much we have been loved by God. And how much we don't deserve it. And how even though we still sin against him daily, as children of God, we still daily forget the gospel and look for other things to put our hope in. God promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. That we are his. God has shown us his love, Mercy Hill, and he commands us to love others. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, there's no other option. That's the call. So um, I would love to pray for us. Father, I repent myself just how quickly I can become numb to the gospel and just get distracted with things on this earth. Lord, would you help me to fix my eyes and help us to fix our eyes this morning on that which matters most. It's Jesus, your son, and the kingdom that he is making. And the hope that one day, Lord, you will gather your family, some from every nation, tribe, and tongue for eternity, and there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more tears, for all those former things will pass away. God, you you have loved us so much. You have loved us so, so much. It doesn't make sense. But Lord, it helps me to trust you. So God, I pray that we would focus on how you've loved us and let that lead us to loving you and those around us. And Lord, that Mercy Hill would be a light in this city. And that when people would look at, when the world would look at the people of Mercy Hill, they would ask, what is different? And we would be so quick to point to you, Jesus, and how you've loved us. We praise you, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name.